ready to start First Samuel this morning. <clears throat> so, time to review the chronology of the Bible, the way these books are arranged on the screen here. Genesis gets the biggest chunk since it covers thousands of years of history, all the way from Adam up through uh, Joseph in Egypt. Um, and then we did Exodus, which covers a few hundred years, and then Judges, which covers a few hundred years. Ruth happens during the Judges, so it's in there. Um, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua all kind of fit into this tiny little white space there after Exodus. Now, we're beginning, this is the first time we've had this in our Bible reading so far. We're going to start reading some material that's going to be repeated later. First and Second Chronicles covers the same period of history as First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. So after we spend several weeks doing those four books, we're going to go back and do the same history again from a different angle. I mean, it's not obviously word for word the same. So we're right at the beginning of this uh, First and Second Chronicles um, period with First uh, Samuel chapter one. Any questions before I flip to a new... Well, let me just actually turn this off for a little bit. Um, I want to talk about, in general, where we are in the history. We're, we're coming... First Samuel is a, is a major transition book, transitioning from the period of the judges to the period of what? The kings, the kings yes. Um, in the... In the history of Israel, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> they were ruled basically in three different ways. The, um, from Joshua to the end of Samuel, um, that's pretty much the period of the judges. Um, Edersheim likes to call this the period of being ruled by the prophets. You'll see why in a moment. But he, and, and, and there's a lot of truth to what he says because... Many of these judges had the spirit come upon them, um, so they they were spirit-led men, which would make them essentially prophets. Deborah was a prophet, if you don't mind calling a woman a prophet, prophetess. Um, the king's section is very obvious, starting with Saul and going until they got taken into the captivity in Babylon at the end of the book of books of first second kings or second chronicles and then um, when they came back from captivity they were really under the high priest uh, that was where the the authority was after that now they're after the end of the old testament and then before the start of the new testament there was some strange things going on but um you could essentially say that the that the nation of Israel had been ruled first by prophets, then by kings, then by the high priests. The reason Edersheim likes to make that point is that, uh, well, you tell me, what's the connection he's trying to? Make? Jesus is a high priest, and and a king, and a prophet. He is a prophet, a priest, and a king, all put into one. And so he was what the Old Testament period was all looking forward to. Ruling under a prophet, under a king, or under a priest. Each of those three periods 
kind of worked itself out until it was shown to be a failure. Um, the Judges period, we just finished the book of Judges and, and it was pretty disastrous. Um, Samuel's going to be the last judge and really he was the best of all of them. But by the end of it, the, the people wanted a change. They didn't want to keep on going with this Judges prophet thing. Um, the kings... Who was the greatest of the kings? David. Yeah, it would be David. And it was kind of all downhill after that with a few, a few bumps along the way. And then you have the high priest ruling. And that period ends when Jesus is on earth when the high priest is the one who says, it's better that one should die and not the whole nation be destroyed. And, and, and this was... He was uttering that very cynically because his intention was to murder a man he knew to be innocent. <clears throat> that was the end of the, of the reign of the priests. So, all of these are shown to be failures. And the reason they are failures is because the people trusted in themselves instead of in God. In every case, that was, that was why the period failed. And whenever you had someone who rose above that and, and who put his trust in God and who seriously tried to do God's will, you had success. And, and you had that under, under David. You had that under Samuel. And, and with the high priest, there were some of the high priests where there was that kind of uh, faith and, and obedience to God as well. But by and large, the failure was simply because the people weren't, were not willing to put God as their king. Um, with Samuel, we're also introduced to someone who has a parallel in the, in the New Testament. Does anyone know who would be the parallel to Samuel in the New Testament? I'll give you a, a who? Uh, no, no, no. Um, Samuel was the one who led up to David. John the Baptist. Yes. Now, and as soon as you say John the Baptist, the one you start thinking about it, um, what was what was John the Baptist? That we also had a few people in the Old Testament. A Nazarite. Meaning he didn't do what? Didn't cut his hair. He didn't drink grape juice or wine. He was a Nazarite for life. John the Baptist was. Who in the Old Testament was a Nazarite for life? Samuel was. <laughs> yes. And, and there's only one other one, which was Samson. Yes. Uh, so, apparently a very deliberate parallel here where you have... Both of these men being this rare set, uh, Nazarite for life, both of these men were born in a, a, a divine way, I won't say a miraculous way, but a divine way, in that with both of them, the mother had gone for many years without having, being able to have a child, and, and it seemed like it was not possible, and it wouldn't have been apart from God. We have another thing with Samuel that is an odd one. Um, chapter 2, verse 26 says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. The same thing said of Jesus. Yeah, the same thing said of Jesus, which 
Now we say, wait a minute, he's supposed to be a foreshadowing of of John the Baptist. Well, First Samuel, Samuel chapter two, verse twenty-six. Um, a lot of these shadows can go in multiple ways, and so there there are some ways in which Samuel would foreshadow Jesus. Jesus was what all the Nazarites were pointing towards. He was true. The, uh, the idea of a Nazarite is a person totally dedicated to God. Jesus is the only one ever that achieved that. Even though Jesus wasn't technically a Nazarite in the sense of, I mean, I'm sure he cut his hair and he certainly didn't mind drinking grape juice and all. Um, now, um, let's look at the outline next. And I've put both First and Second Samuel on this outline for a reason. Anyone want to tell me what the reason is? Why would I put them both on at the same time? They're one book, yes. Whoever wrote for first and second Samuel, we don't know who it was or exactly even when it was, some years after Samuel though, but whoever wrote the book wrote it as one book. And it was split when the Septuagint translators translated the Greek translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek a few hundred years before Jesus. And and that's how it's carried down to us, where it's two books. But I, I want to put them both up there because if if the thing was originally one book, you have to look at the whole thing in order to see what the goal of the book is. And so the first seven chapters give us the background for the establishment of kingship in Israel. And then we have the first king, who is, of course was Saul, then he fails, and then we have we finally get Saul died, dies, and then David becomes king, and we follow David through, but we don't have his death. Um, the book of Samuel does not cover David's death. So that the, the goal of the book is to transition from a period of judges until we have the kingdom established like it's supposed to be. That's why we, we, we cover Saul, but we, we get him out of the way before we finally finish off. And we end up with David still alive, although it's at the end of his reign. That's the, the, the book is not intended to be a biography of any one person. And in fact, the people that tells about it often skips an awful lot of details about them. It's a history of God's dealing with His people and how God was dealing with them through judges at one point and then He switched over and dealt with them through kings at the end. Yeah, Tracy. Who wrote Samuel? We don't know. First, second Samuel. We don't know. No, I mean there are a lot of books in the Old Testament. We don't know who they wrote. Who, who wrote them? We don't know who wrote Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We, we're pretty sure that we think Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles. But yeah, most most of the history books we don't know who wrote them. I mean, you can get some hints as to when it was because every so often in a book. The author will say, and it's still there to this day. And that gives you some idea. Or, or they'll give you some uh, other indication that... And now back in those days, they did it this way. Did you notice that in, in, this, in this morning's reading? There was a time when it says, now back in those days, they did it this way. Does that ring a bell? Um, it's in um, chapter 9. Um, 
Yeah, chapter 9, verse 9. You see where it says, Formerly in Israel when a man went to inquire of God, he used to say, Come, let's go to the seer. For he was called a prophet now, was formerly called a seer. What's now? <laughs> That's the big question. <laughs> when, when is this guy writing? Um, uh, it's, yeah, it would be. But obviously he's writing long enough where the actual words have changed. And uh, so he's kind of interpreting the word for the for his readers who are he's writing probably several hundred years after these events happened. Is it currently uh, in Judges? I forget what you said last week, but something about the um, the words. But um, some of some of the writings that, that happened in Judges happened in first. Samuel, sort of. Um, well, yeah, we think we think that Samson, we think that Samson actually lived during the time of Samuel. That's it. Yeah, and um, but he's never mentioned in Samuel, so there's no way to to kind of put them together in that sense. Um, all right, now let's put up the map. And I can't find everything that we have in today's lesson on the map, but I'll leave it up there for when we have an opportunity to look yeah, gotcha. at yeah. I looked up most of the cities that that mentioned in the... Uh-huh. They're around Ju- Judah. Most of them are centered around... Right. Well, um, it, this is the area we're going to be talking about here. Yes. Um, we don't know whether Samuel's influence. We don't know how far out Samuel's influence extended. Um, but all the cities that are mentioned are in, in this area. Uh, he, w- he his family was from the hill country of Ephraim, but he was actually uh, in another passage where it gives his his um, lineage. We find out he was actually a Levite. Samuel was. Where did you find that? Um, I, I didn't look it up. My guess is it's going to be in First Chronicles, but I don't know. Um, I didn't look it up. I have in the past, but I didn't look it up this time. Right. Yeah. He. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And of course, you know that the Le- that the Levites lived in all the different tribes, um, but somewhere. Somewhere we do have a lineage that gives them coming from Levi. I just can't tell you where it is. Um, was his father? His father must have been a Levi. Yeah, must have, but I don't. I can't give you more detail than that. So um, the the story starts in Shiloh, uh, which what was in Shiloh at this time? Yeah. The tabernacle was was in uh, in Shiloh, and the Ark of the Covenant, of course, in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And we haven't had much about the the, the tabernacle for quite a while here. Um, people have just been kind of doing their own thing, including making their own idols <laughs> um, and hiring a Levite to be their priest and all the strange things. 
But we're back at Shiloh, and um, we're introduced to this wonderful lady named Hannah, who is praying for a son. And apparently things are so bad that when she's praying there at the tabernacle, Eli thinks she's drunk. I guess he's more used to seeing people drunk than he is seeing people pray without actually saying the words. Um, and uh, But she, she makes up her mind that she doesn't want the Son for herself. She wants the Son for God. She wants a gift to God. And so if God will give her this Son, she will devote this Son to God for His whole life. And so not only was He a Nazarite for life, but he was devoted to the service at the tabernacle. So from the time he was weaned, which um, for, a, for a Jewish people back then would have been at the age of about three, from three years old and on, he grew up at the tabernacle. And his parents only saw him how often? Once a year. Once a year. Yeah. Um, we learn somewhere along here that there were actually women who were serving at the tabernacle. That that's they're not mentioned in the law of Moses, and they're never mentioned in the in the Bible in, in in a way to give us much more details than that. But it may have been that some of them helped raise him, or maybe um, maybe Eli, the high priest, maybe his wife helped raise um, Samuel, because uh, obviously a three-year-old kid is not ready just to be out on his own. <laughs> yeah, Tracy. The annual feast, was it Passover that they came once a year to the tabernacle, or was it one of the three, the Feast of Weeks or something? Yeah, it doesn't say. I don't see it here. Um, yeah, it doesn't say which one it was, so I don't know. Um, I mean, they were supposed to go three times, but this family was only going once. Which is probably more than a lot of people at this time. The you know, service to God had really declined. So when she finally takes Samuel and gives him to to Eli, then in chapter two she has this this great poem or song that she prays to God, and it's really a parallel to um, probably the poem, the song of Mary in the New Testament. Um, the one that the Catholic Church calls the Magnificat from the Latin, "My soul magnifies the Lord." Um, it's a it's a great it's a great poem that um, celebrates the fact that God gives victory to poor people and brings down people that are high and mighty. And uh, it's there's even a place in the poem where it's kind of looking forward to um, the King, even. Uh, um, there's a first in this in this poem. This is the first time anyone uses the term, "the Lord of Hosts." Um, now, the author of of Samuel uses the term uh, earlier in the book, but you you, know, you don't find the term "Lord of Hosts" found anywhere before First Samuel. From First Samuel on, it's used quite a lot, and um, she uses it. Um, now it's. Yeah, I don't find, I don't see the verse right now, but I know she uses the Lord of Hosts. Um, what does the word Lord of Hosts mean? What are hosts? Angels. Armies. Armies. Yes. 
Yeah, so the term Lord of Hosts means the Lord of Armies. And and the reason I want to point this out is that uh, there's a lot of different terms in the Old Testament for God. And they don't just kind of, you know, sprinkle them around, you know, like we haven't used this one in a while, let's throw that in. That's not the way they do it. They use a term that has a meaning related to what they're thinking about. So if God is the Lord of armies, we're thinking in terms of victory for God's people. And, and that, of course, is, is the, the thought behind uh, her song of praise uh, to God here. Is it human armies or God's armies? It doesn't say. It doesn't say whose armies it is. Because <laughs> um. you read sometimes the, the uh, host is angels. Yes, there are, there are angel armies as well as human armies. Yeah. I'm just wondering, how would you know the difference? Well, which one is God hosted? God the Lord of? Oh. <laughs> That's right. He's, he's of all. He's the Lord of all the hosts. <laughs> all right. Um, now, what kind of shape was the tabernacle worship in at this time? Very bad. It was just terrible, yeah. And we're really reminded of the, the the shape of the temple in Jesus' day when they were, you know, you know, buying and selling in the temple just to make money for the priesthood. Um, they in the in New Testament days, the standard of living had gone way up, and those priests were a lot better off than these people. I mean, in the days of Eli, people were very poor, and the way they were getting quote rich was how. Sacrifices. Yeah, taking meat from the sacrifices. Now, as you recall, from when we studied the Leviticus, they were supposed to get some of the meat from the sacrifice. That they were apparently they were doing two things at the same time. In fact, taking pieces that they weren't authorized in law to have, and taking it before it had been offered to God. Of course, that second part is just really an abomination when you think about it. Um, to say, you know, I come before God is, is pretty strong language. Um, if, if an American was doing this today, we would think, this guy's got to be desperate. I mean, a little bit of extra meat, and what are we talking about? But in, in that time, when people were so poor, um, that, that most people did not eat meat very often at all. Uh, meat was a, was really reserved for for special occasions, feasts, you know, like the once a year one that that Elkanah took his family to. So this was their way of of you know getting ahead financially. They had another way of sinning, and what was that? Yeah, Tracy. I don't know if it's the one you're thinking of, but they um, they didn't burn the fat in some of it. That's not the one I'm thinking of, because that, that's the one I just named. Yeah, John. Yeah, they, they, they were having sex with the women who were serving at the tabernacle. Um, so, just... And the people, the, the people knew this was going on. And so it was just... The people despised the worship of God, which meant they were... They were Close to despising God too. It was just, it was just terrible. And uh, whose responsibility was it to deal with these things? Eli, because he was a high priest. Did you deal with it? 
But it says, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? Too late. It's his responsibility. Yeah, the problem is that words were not enough with people that were as hardened as his sons. He needed to take action, and he wasn't willing to take action. Um, it's not an uncommon problem that a father, especially an older father, is not willing to really do what needs to be done to discipline his his sons or or to or, or to um, publicize what they're doing. Um, yeah, it appears that Samuel had the same problem. It's it's too bad. Um, and David, yeah, who? <laughs> nope, nobody knows how to raise kids. <laughs> Yeah, Matthew. Well, and we also find out in chapter 4 that Eli was heavy, which in a poor nation would have been tough to do. How they get fat unless he was eating some of this meat? Yeah. Well, that's possible, unfortunately. But we have obesity among the poor in this nation, and it's attributed to uh, processed foods, carbohydrates. <laughs> Moving right along, uh, Ralph had his hand up. <laughs> Yeah, he might well have. He might well have been enjoying some of those fruits. You know. Now, he was allowed to have certain parts. It's just they were taking parts they weren't allowed to have. In David's time, his kids were a result of his sin with Bathsheba. Well, more than that. More than that, but we'll wait till we get there. Yeah. Um, so the prophet came and told him that the priesthood was going to be taken away from him. Does anyone know when that was fulfilled? When the priesthood was taken away from his family? Yeah, was that? I was thinking that might have been when the ark was taken by the Philistines. That was only the beginning of it. Well, now that there is truth to that. Certainly, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. Um, but in the Old Testament, the, the final fulfillment came at the beginning of Solomon's reign, which is quite a long time from now. Um, all of these people, of course, are long gone, but the, the curse was on the whole family. And we'll, we'll watch for that when we get there in a few weeks. Um, Samuel, meanwhile, is growing up. He's taking care of the, um, the tabernacle and the courts and his job. What was his job as a boy? Open the doors. Yes, probably the doors from for the outer court. The doors where the common people would come in. Um, now, in in Exodus, the doors were actually a curtain. The, the whole the whole fence was made out of cloth. But it could be that by this time they had decided to make um, more permanent doors because it had been there for a long, long time, and the curtains would have wouldn't have lasted too well. But anyway, that was his job. Not a, not a major job for a for someone, but he's just a kid. And he sleeps there probably inside the the court. Um, and the reason I think that is that it, it, when it gives the time frame, it says that the lamp inside the tabernacle hadn't gone out yet. And I'm thinking um, the way it's told, he could tell what time it was by looking out, out uh, from his bed and looking at the glow coming out of the of the holy place. He wasn't in the holy place, but he could look at the glow and see whether the light was still going. Um, 
And so God works has this interesting way of getting his attention. And, and God deliberately does it in a way that Eli knows God's talking to Samuel. Which right there would be a, a lesson to Eli. He's the high priest. Why is God speaking to Samuel instead of to him? Well, because he's been judged. But it also had the, the advantage that the next morning he knew to ask Samuel because Samuel was too scared to tell him. I mean, this is a. I mean, he was the one that raised Samuel, and Samuel's got to tell him this terrible judgment on him. This was a training. God was training Samuel because there, Samuel many, many times is going to have to tell people things that are not going to be pleasant for them to hear, not going to be pleasant for Samuel to tell them. And so God gives him one, carefully arranges it to where he will do it, and he grows as a result. And and I mean, the the most fundamental responsibility Samuel has with these visions and these, these not visions but revelations from God is to tell the people God wants to hear the message that's his job and, and, and if, if he's scared and not willing to do it or modifies it because of, of, of his own feelings that's going to be disaster um, and he, but he, he did it right and so in verse 19, thus Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fail, literally fall to the ground. That was when God gave Samuel a prophecy and Samuel told the people that prophecy never failed. It always came true as God had, had said. And so all Israel knew that he was a prophet. And, and um, so he began to bring the people back to God. Um, and I think when chapter 4 happens that Samuel had already been teaching the people but he hadn't gotten very far at that point in chapter 4 the Philistines attacked and this battle took place um, right around here it's not on the map but Aphek is right around here in Ephraim on the map uh, and the uh, the Israelites lost 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when it says on the battlefield, that's different. Usually, the big slaughter is when the people are running away. They get chased and cut down on the roads. But here, 4,000 guys were, were killed just right in the battle. It was a very heavy battle. And they said, why have the, has the Lord defeated us? Now, of course, having read the book of Judges, we know perfectly well why the Lord defeated them. But they think it's a different reason. And so what's their solution to the problem? Yeah. Bring the ark. Bring the ark. They haven't done that since the days of Jericho. Have the ark in battle. But hey, look what happened in Jericho. <laughs> Works great. <laughs> and um, so along with the ark came who? Hophni and Phinehas. Yeah, that ought to be a, that ought to be a, a warning what's going to happen to this ark. And so they had the big battle, and this time even more people died. 30,000 of, of Israel were, were killed, and the ark was taken. And of course, that's when uh, Eli died when he heard that news. Um, uh, Phinehas's wife died when she heard the news. Um, and we don't read of the tabernacle worship at Shiloh after this, as far as I can tell. We'll watch, but I don't think we ever find them worshiping in Shiloh again. It just kind of, and I don't know whether the Philistines just went ahead and, and knocked knocked the 
tabernacle down? I don't think so because Eli was there and he had to wait and get news about what had happened in the battle. I just I don't know what happened, but once the ark was taken, it seems like they just kind of just discontinued the worship. Eli died, and that was just kind of it. The, the um, I don't know what chapter or verses, but it's in our reading that the, that, that the, um, the ark was t- taken into a, a certain person's house. And right. Yeah, no, we'll get there. You're, you're getting ahead of us. We're going to get there. Um, yeah, initially the ark, of course, was taken to the Philistine territory. To what, What's the first city that it went to? Ashdod. Yeah, Ashdod. This is Ashdod. There were five major Philistine cities. Ekron, Ashdod, Gath, Ashkelon, and Gaza. Um, those are the five cities. And the Ark, by the time they're done, the Ark has visited three of those cities. And <laughs> um, you know what? That Gaza, um, in today over there, Gaza is one of their cities. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a major... Um, a major city of the Palestinians. Yeah, the Gaza Strip, they call it, the whole area. Um, so God demonstrates that they might have captured His ark, but He's still more powerful than their God. They're, they get up in the morning and their God is bowing down in worship before the ark. <laughs> and then when they don't get the message the next time, He doesn't have a head or a hands. And then he start, God starts plaguing them with what? Yeah, with, the, with tumors and mice. Yeah, the mice would have been. Um, I mean, don't, don't don't think you know like mice in your house. These would have been mice that would have been eating up their harvest, getting into their barns and places like that, and just it would costing them a lot of money. I mean, it would be terrible. Um, so, you know this. this this can be a coincidence, you know. I mean, just the fact that you know the ark is in your is in the temple of Dagon, and suddenly you start getting these these plagues. It could be a coincidence. So send it to the next town over, and then you'll see. And by the third town, they they were convinced this is no coincidence that the plagues are following with the ark. But the um, the priests that they consult these are these are the Philistine priests. They have one more test to make to prove whether this really came from God or not. What's that final test? Bring the, put the ark on a cart with the cows to see if they go home or not. Yeah. Yeah, these are Philistine cows and, and they their calves are tied up back in the Philistine barn. Let's see which way they go. And which way do they go? Yeah, they went aw- directly away from their, their calves and they went the shortest route to the Philistine territory and they ended up uh, the city's not on the on the map here, but they end up right around it here, uh, which is the kind of eastern tribe of Dan. Um, and they stopped. As soon as they got to the first Israelite city, they, the, the cows stopped, and the Israelites then slaughtered them as a sacrifice to God. This, this town was called Beth Shemesh. And then when a bunch of their men got killed for irreverently looking at the ark. They um, sent the ark on to Kiriath Jerum, which is on the map here. It's, it's a, a town very near. There, yeah, Tracy. I was wondering, when they sent the um, um, 
silver, gold, um, the different plates that they had. What happened to those? No, I was wondering, they must, did they put them on the, the car that are on top of the ark? The they put it with the ark. I don't know any more than that. It doesn't say they did. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what happened to them either. <laughs> I know I get all these answers. Yeah. Um, so that's the background of what happened to the ark we're not going to hear about the ark again until the time of David um, it, um, in verse, chapter 7 verse 2 says that it was 20 years that it was there now that 20 years I think it was actually there a lot longer than 20 years I think that 20 years was until our, our story begins in chapter 7 with Samuel saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Asherah from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone. So, so Samuel's been working for all these years to try to get the people to repent and finally he's getting them to that point. They had a big meeting at Mizpah which was not a meeting to, for battle at all. It was a meeting to, to worship God and confess their sins. Very important. But while they were having this nice religious meeting, what do the Philistines do? Oh, they come up for a visit. Yeah, they're not happy about this. They assume any kind of a meeting is bad. And so they're going to attack. Now the last time the Philistines had any dealings with the God of Israel, what had happened to them? Uh, plagues of mice, right? <laughs> 20 years earlier. I'm sure they remembered that. So it might not take too much to get, to, to get their attention. And what did God do in this case? Thunder. He thundered at them, which, you know, at first glance you think, oh, that's not that big a deal. But it depends on the thunder. <laughs> you can get some pretty big thunder. I'm sure this was, this was the biggest that God had to offer. Um, so they went running off, and the Israelites chased them and cut them down. And that that stopped that kind of action. The Philistines didn't didn't um, make any more invasions. Although the Philistines were still occupying this territory and they had outposts, but they quit, um, you know, just directly attacking Israelites like that. Um, so now we jump forward some more years. I don't know how many until the end of Samuel's life. And what do the people ask for? Yeah, they want a king. Now, was it wrong for them to have a king? Well, they had a king already. They had God. Was it wrong for them to have a human king? No, but they asked for the wrong attitude. Yeah. Tracy's right. It's not wrong for them to have a king because the book of Deuteronomy talked about a king. He said, in time to come when you ask for a king, here's the way the kings shall live. And, and we studied that when we were doing Deuteronomy. But the reason was, was unfortunately the wrong reason. That they, they wanted a king because they were tired of the way it worked under the judges. The king, you know, you know, and of course, we remember the judges, it was always this up and down thing, you know, serve God, things are good, forsake God, things are bad. And from the viewpoint of someone who doesn't have faith, it looks like the problem is in the politics. We just need to reorganize the country to solve this problem. Of course, from someone who has faith, they understand the politics is not the issue at all. The it's the matter of the people's heart. Are you going to serve God or not? It's, it's a, that choice. But they thought if they had a king like all the nations around them had, which, is, which was 
part of their ill motives, then it would work out better because the king would have this standing army like all the kings had. And, and so he wouldn't let them get overrun by some foreign nation. Of course, we're going to see that it's not going to work so hot with a king who, whose heart is not with God, but they don't know that. Um, and Samuel was very grieved because he, knew, he understood that their heart was wrong in this. And God told them, yeah, that's wrong. They're rejecting me as king is what they're doing. But they want a king. Go ahead and give them a king. Yeah, Ralph. Well, I just noticed that it seems as part of their reasoning was the fact that Samuel's sons were bad also. And they used they use that to... Yes. To yeah. Which, of course, in the, in the times of the judges, it wasn't a hereditary thing. It wasn't that, you know, just because Samuel was judged and his sons are going to be judged. But he had already pointed his sons as judges. They were... And, and I take it what, he, what, what that means is they were some kind of... Um, they had some kind of office, uh, of political office, where they helped ar- arrange political affairs. So you don't think they were, they were doing priestly duties? There's no indication they were, no. Yeah, but that wasn't the, that that wasn't his judge part. I mean, the I mean, judge part I, was really leading. Because I, I, I always read Samuel thinking of him as a judge and not as a priest, not, not being that line. So I'm just trying to understand what was Samuel's duties or job. Yeah. Well, as a judge, I, I, I think that as judges they would be helping the people to make political decisions. Um, just to basically arrange things, just just like what we would have a mayor for or a governor for. I mean, we see those offices are quite important, and and um, Samuel saw the need for it, and, and you know, so he his sons were appointed down in Beersheba, which was quite a ways away. He he couldn't get down there very often, I'm sure. Uh, so it was just to kind of extend the reach of of the uh, political reforms I think he was trying to make. But unfortunately. They were not honest like he was. They were taking bribes. Um, which, of course, I mean, any of you who read world news know that that is just very, very common all over the place. Um, it happens in our country too, but they have to keep it a lot quieter than they do in most countries. Um, yeah, does that answer your question? Do we have a high priest at this time? I, I'm sure we did, but I don't know his name. It would have been. Um, somebody of Aaron's lineage, and and Samuel was not of Aaron's lineage. Samuel was not a priest, but he was a Levite. Um, and the Levites were they they also would offer sacrifices. <clears throat> um, okay, now as we go into Saul, I need we need to talk about the two the first two kings, Saul and David. It seems odd on the surface that God would have Samuel pick a man who would be who would end up as such a failure. And I don't know if you've thought about that much, but you know it seems like if if God carefully had Samuel go and appoint this guy, he should have been the right guy, and he's obviously not. Um, the second guy he had him appoint was the right guy. That was David. God picked David. Um, what? God picked David. God picked Saul too. See, that's what I'm trying to say. I mean, you've got the problem. Why did he pick Saul? And yet Saul is a failure. And Edersheim has some interesting things to say about this. And he, he says that Saul really was a king after the people's own heart. And David was a king after God's own heart. And that God was selecting Saul so the people would understand 
the end result of their attitude. You want a king? This is the kind of king you want. And you watch all the way through it. The people were just, they were just ecstatic with their king. He was exactly what they wanted. He was like they wanted. He thought like they did. He just, he was one of them. Oh, when the Holy Spirit came on him, and he, some of the men said, "You know that he's not right." Yes, and, and that was probably more tribal jealousy because he came. What what tribe did Saul come from? Little tribe. Yeah, Benjamin, which is the smallest tribe, because in the book of Judges, he got wiped out down to what about six hundred guys. So, um, yeah, that was probably tribal jealousy. There's you, you, the, the tribes that were. Always thought they were the big cheese were Judah and Ephraim on both sides of Benjamin, and and yeah, they probably thought that you know this. They had some other guys in mind, I'm sure. These people that didn't like him, you know, we wanted our guy. But where, what, what tribe were they from? The guys that didn't like him. Well, it doesn't say. I'm just suggesting that that the tribes that would have been most jealous would have been Judah and Ephraim. Yeah. So. Um, well, both they were both pretty bad. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to wrap it up here, but um, let me just do, tell you about chapter 10 briefly. Um, Samuel gave Saul some signs that he could know that God had picked him. There were three signs that, that were going to happen. Um, the first one was that someone would tell him that uh, they had already found the donkeys and they were worried about Saul now. The second one was some people going up to God would give him two loaves of bread. Um, and the third one, when he saw this group of, of prophets coming down, um, then the Spirit of God would come upon him and he would prophesy as well, which he did. Um, this was not a permanent thing. Um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't like he, got, he had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit from this time on. But the Holy Spirit came on him. We find the Holy Spirit doing it again when he learns about what's happening at Jabesh Gilead. The Spirit comes upon him and, and he, he um, behaves mightily. But those three signs came on him. So Saul knew unquestionably he was picked to be uh, the king. And um, we'll have to take it up from there toward the end of chapter 10 when he gets anointed and then we'll move on. We've got lots more stories to go. I'm afraid we're going to get behind get behind her and behind her here but um, we, we're going through chapter 22 next time so, appreciate everyone's help